The Emergency Medical Minute presents Ukraine Brew Talk, an event from October 2022 hosted by the University of Colorado's Combat Research Center. Hello and welcome to Emergency Medical Minute. My name is Jeffrey Olson and I'm a first year medical student at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm here today talking with Dr. Travis Barlock, an emergency medicine physician at Swedish Medical Center. You might recognize his voice from many of our medical minutes. Dr. Barlock, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So the purpose of today's episode is to recap an event Emergency Medical Minute helped host back in October. The event was titled Ukraine Brew Talk and was put on in combination with CU Center for Combat Research. COMBAT there is an acronym that stands for Combat Medicine and Battlefield Research. I'd like to play a few clips for you from this event and get your opinion on some of the emergency medicine topics that were discussed. Uh, the first clip is from then-student and now graduated Dr. John Hessling, who was part of the Combat Medicine Research at CU, and he's presenting some of his research on pediatric supermassive transfusions. So without further ado, let's give the clip a listen. All right. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for uh, letting me share some of the research that I've done as part of the Combat Scholar Program, give you kind of an idea of what some of the scholars do as part of the uh, program and the mentorship that we're able to receive. And I'm going to talk about characterizing pediatric supermassive transfusion and also the contributing injury patterns that we see in the combat environment with respect to that. Uh, by way of background, trauma is actually the leading cause of mortality for uh, our pediatric population with up to a 50% mortality rate for those who require massive transfusions. A massive transfusion is typically defined as about 40 milliliters per kilogram of blood products transfused, but there's not much research on what we looked into, which is super massive transfusion. We characterize that as about 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram, or almost basically one pediatric blood volume. So our goal was to characterize these patients and figure out what pre-hospital interventions may be able to save them or to at least understand what pre-hospital interventions may lead to supermassive transfusion or be predictive for that so that we can form resuscitation strategies and possibly implement massive transfusion protocols at an earlier time. For the methods, we basically looked at the Department of Defense trauma registry, and this is a huge registry of casualties throughout various conflict zones around the world. From there, we're able to find 3,439 pediatric casualties that we can then basically divide up between supermassive transfusion, which is greater than 80 milliliters per kilogram, and then massive transfusion, which is 40 to 80, and then look at the differences between them. And what we found was that survival to discharge was 86% for massive transfusion, but as you can see for supermassive transfusion, that drops all the way to 78%. We also found that injuries to the abdomen as well as the extremities are more likely to be associated with requiring a supermassive transfusion versus a massive transfusion. Uh, specifically, I call attention to extremities with an odds ratio of 2.13, much more likely, but skin, facial, thorax, and head and neck injuries were not predictive of whether a patient may need these higher level resuscitation protocols. We also found that pre-hospital interventions of wound dressings and tourniquets, as well as IO access, were predictive for uh, requiring a supermassive transfusion, which I think makes a lot of sense if you think of the fact that the extremity injuries themselves are more likely to lead to mass, uh, supermassive transfusion, then hopefully the appropriate action of a tourniquet would also be predictive for that. 
And then in terms of vital signs, we took a look at uh, hypotension as well as tachycardia. We found that hypotension was predictive for a patient that may require these higher level transfusions, but tachycardia was not. In terms of the implications, we see that these supermassive transfusion patients have a much higher mortality rate, which probably makes a lot of sense intuitively speaking. But I think what's really important is that we're able to highlight the critical nature of our extremity injuries. And this is a great spot where we can basically apply some pre-hospital intervention and hopefully prevent the requirement for these massive transfusions. And it's been shown in adults time and again, if you can see a tourniquet usage reduced mortality of combat casualties between 2001 and 2011 by up to 85%. And then the Pediatric Trauma Society itself does endorse the Stop the Bleed campaign that many of us in this room have probably gone through uh, as part of our training just, you know, to see what they do. And essentially, they can teach people, especially lay people, how to stop uh, bleeding injuries at the scene. And the studies have shown that these combat action tourniquets can achieve 100% arterial occlusion in a pediatric patient. So this all kind of links to something that we can do right now in the pre-hospital environment to potentially save lives going forward. And this is really important if you think about what can be done in less resourced environments. This is OR in Africa, and you can think of an environment like this where you're not likely to have the resources that you'd have, say, at Colorado or Denver Health. And so if we know what patients may require these supermassive transfusions before they even arrive at the center, we can hopefully get the ball rolling, and especially in the cases of these people not having the resources to just throw at anybody. It does also point out that there's not much that we can really do right now in terms of abdominal injuries uh, in the pre-hospital environment, but more research needs to be done in order to characterize what we can do with that. There are some obvious limitations to this. We use Department of Defense data, and most of our injuries were blast injuries. Thankfully, that is not the number one mechanism of trauma in the United States for our pediatric population, which is actual automobile accidents. And we also weren't able to account for the pre-hospital transport time, which in a combat zone can be highly variable. And so there are definitely casualties that likely never made our analysis because they were lost prior to being able to arrive at a military hospital. Uh, and then we obviously depend on the accuracy of the data, and we didn't do any long-term follow-up. All right. Uh, so we just listened to that. Uh, so to summarize, uh, Dr. Hessling's study, it focused on pediatric trauma cases in the United States and specifically examined supermassive transfusions in these patients. Supermassive transfusions were defined as an administration of 80 milliliters of blood products per kilogram of body weight. So my first question for you, Dr. Barlock, is just how much blood is that? Is there any way you could put that into perspective? Sure. I think that one just that that was a really good analysis that he gave. But um, speaking to your question specifically, 80 mLs per kilo. So the standard adult is going to be around 70 kilos. And so 80 mLs per kilo, that'll be 5,600 mLs. So 5.6 liters. So that's almost, you know, one and a half gallons of, of blood. So definitely a lot, you know, and you have about five to six, you know, circulating in your body um, at any given time. So it's basically your entire circulating blood volume. So definitely that's uh, that is a lot of blood. Yeah, I, that's what it sounded like to me, but it's good to, to get uh, a better way to think about that number. So next question is, imagine you've got a pediatric trauma case coming in and you have listened to Dr. Hessling's talk here and you think, Based off of what you hear from the medical services team, you're going to need to administer blood, maybe even a lot of blood. Uh, what would you be thinking? Yeah. 
That's a good question. I really do think that just more generally speaking, the biggest advantage that we get in emergency medicine is really conferred by EMS, by early notification. And so when we're able to prepare, then that that, that changes everything. So pre- preparation is, is truly key. So by knowing how far out the patient is, that gives us time. And then by knowing, for example, if it's a pediatric patient, how much they weigh, that's huge because then, you know, we're going to be doing all of our weight-based interventions for, for a child. Because, you know, if, if we're just saying a pediatric patient, I mean, the difference between, a, you know, um, a newborn and, a, you know, 15-year-old, right, is, is tremendous. And so when we're talking about kids, you know, knowing their weight beforehand is critical. So we'd probably get out the Braslow tape anyway just to have that at the bedside. Knowing their weight would help us kind of calculate out things that we need right from the get-go. If they're communicating to us that, hey, this is a pediatric trauma that's sick, you know, this is a pediatric trauma that is tachycardic, hypotensive, and they're reporting like these things that he mentioned, you know, abdominal and extremity injuries, there's blood loss, and we can initiate a uh, massive transfusion protocol right from the get-go. We can have that blood ready in the room. That's that's helpful. That's, you know, again, getting at that uh, preparation and, and readiness. And having warm blood pressurized transfusers, a Belmont, for example, would be also something that we'd have in the room. Having multiple forms of IV access and talking through kind of what we would do to to get that, whether it's getting rapid IVs, getting an IO, getting in a cordis, getting in these different versions of IV access is going to be critical. And then there's the other adjuncts that kind of go in addition to providing just the blood that are also really important to not forget. So when talking about blood, are we talking about, you know, packed red blood cells? Are we talking about whole blood? Are we talking about blood with these other factors in it? So there's uh, fresh frozen plasma, there's platelets, there's cryoprecipitate, there's uh, concentrated factors, um, there's, there's different products. And so by, again, just having early notification, we can get things kind of ready in the room. And the goal would be to administer kind of what's been lost. So whole blood would be ideal, but that's not really common in uh, many of our emergency rooms. Some are kind of transitioning to that, but for the most part, um, emergency rooms will have packed red blood cells, FFP, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets. And so by getting that ready, you can get a jump on that patient's treatment as quickly as possible. All right. Now, for our listeners that don't know, could you explain what a Braslow tape is? Sure. So there's basically, it's kind of like a measuring stick, like a yardstick that you can just lay down on the bed. And there's these designated intervals along this tape where if a pediatric patient is roughly that length, then it gives an estimate for how much they weigh and for common like doses of of critical medications. So if they're like in the white zone, then they're you know maybe like twenty kilos or so. If they're in the blue zone, they're like forty kilos or so. And so it's just like a a quick estimator of weight. Nice. So yeah, I think that's really important what you brought up at the beginning there that. Uh, the term pediatric patient is not actually very descriptive, Mm -hmm. that there's as much variability there as 
between a pediatric patient and an adult. So mm-hmm. yeah, and knowing the weight uh, would be very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So next thing I wanted to ask you about is tourniquet use. So Dr. Hesseling mentioned in his clip that tourniquet use uh, greatly reduces mortality. And from my research, this seems to be a statement generally backed up. Do you want to qualify this statement at all based off of your own understanding and what you've seen? That's it's 100% accurate. The fact of the matter is that just stopping bleeding is going to save lives. Quite frankly, in the emergency department, we aren't really applying tourniquets too much. It's usually good pre-hospital care that uh, is involved with that. And so we end up seeing patients that are brought in with a tourniquet on and appropriately so. So when these patients come in, then it's time to assess that patient with the trauma team and we can kind of together look and see what is the extent of the damage is it is this an arterial bleed is it a venous bleed you know what 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 is the problem that we're really dealing with right now but just to simplify things you know if if there's serious bleeding that the bleeding needs to be stopped and so tourniquets are absolutely essential and de- definitely life-saving all right Well, we thank Dr. Hessling for his talk, and if you'd like to know more about his research, we will link the paper he was discussing in the show notes. On to our next clip. The keynote speaker of the event was Dr. Dave Young, an emergency medicine physician at University of Colorado Hospital, talking about his experience of serving with USA's Team Rubicon, providing medical aid in Ukraine. So let's give it a listen. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience that I had in Ukraine. Uh, I was deployed in most of April of this year, but to give a little bit of background of the war, I think all of us are pretty aware it kind of dominates the headlines, especially these days. Um, But in August of 1991, Ukraine, which used to be part of the USSR, declared independence. In 2014, Crimea, which is a southern peninsula of Ukraine, was invaded and subsequently annexed by the Russian Federation. Then in November 2021, so just less than a year ago, there was a lot of military developments at the borders of uh, Ukraine and Belarus uh, with about 92,000 Russian troops. And then despite everyone's warnings that there was a likely invasion going to happen, the uh, Russia did invade in February 24th, 2022 this year, despite lots of threats of sanctions. So what's happening to all the civilians in Ukraine? They're leaving and they're getting displaced. So about 14.1 million people have been displaced. That's about 20% of the Ukrainian population. 6.9 million remain displaced in Ukraine. So these people are called internally displaced persons. I didn't know this before I left. If you're a refugee, if you leave the country, you're internally displaced if you don't leave the country. And about another 13 million people are estimated to be unable to leave due to current kind of ongoing safety threats. There's still a few humanitarian corridors that are protected. And then there's just lack of knowledge and lack of resources to go. And still to this date, ever since February 24th, men aged 18 to 60 are still not allowed to leave the country. There's a lot of at-risk populations, understandably. Ukraine is not a wealthy country, and there's a large portion of the population that doesn't have a lot of means. The people with means from Ukraine were able to leave the country pretty easily, get in their car, drive across the border, and get out of there. And there's also a lot of people that just don't have that means. And so uh, low-income persons are particularly vulnerable. And even starting with low income, now they have been displaced, so they now have no income. They have nowhere to stay. They are going to struggle with food and housing security. 
women and children are often traveling alone. A lot of times they were sent to try to get them to safety, whereas the men would stay behind. This has led to documented gender-based violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking, especially at the borders. Older individuals, of course, anybody with really chronic medical conditions are at risk. They were in a secure location with access to care and their pharmacy and, you know, their doctors. And now all of that has changed and they don't have uh, access to any of that. And of course, those with disabilities, whether it's mobility issues or really just struggling to comprehend the complex social situation that is ahead of them. So this is where Team Rubicon comes in, because this is the organization that I deployed with. This is a U.S.-based organization. It's veteran-led. They do mostly disaster relief, but some humanitarian work as well. The typical response is what they did for Hurricane Ian, as well as many other hurricanes or tornadoes or fires. They do a lot of work here in the United States. But they do some international response as well. They've worked in Nepal, Mozambique, Guatemala, Greece, as well as a number of other countries. Ukraine was the first ever country that they would go to that was kind of the first active war zone. So I knew a little bit about Team Rubicon beforehand. I went to Nepal and I ran into a lot of Team Rubicon folks and I was like, well, you guys seem to really have your stuff together. So I joined and almost deployed on a few different things with them, but hadn't quite. But I still was like curious about kind of the work that they do. And you'll see that from their Instagram, it's a lot of disaster relief, right? They're cutting down trees, they're rebuilding homes, they're doing sandbags for floods. That's a lot of the work that they do. So I thought it was interesting that they were going to go into the humanitarian space, especially in, in Ukraine. But threw my name in the hat, and they eventually chose me. Team Rubicon applied for and was designated as an EMT-1 from the WHO. What that means that it's a, it's a mobile medical team able to serve about 50 people a day and, and be able to change location basically daily. We were one of 80 EMTs, emergency medicine teams. About 50 of those teams were around Ukraine, and about 30 of them were in Ukraine. So Team Rubicon sent out a small team to do a needs assessment uh, in late February to mostly eastern Poland, and they set up a small base in Zhezhou, um, Zhezhov. I'll pronounce that uh, city wrong every time. And then they eventually kind of sent some people into Ukraine and realized that there was obviously, not surprisingly, quite a need for care. There was an overburdening of the healthcare resources, lack of mental health resources, basically a pause in really any non-urgent or emergent care and just so many different barriers for people to actually access healthcare. We, that was wave one, and wave two deployed on March 9th, which consisted of two complete medical teams which started to deliver medical care in the, in the community. So my background, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I work at University of Colorado Hospital. I did a fellowship here at University of Colorado in wilderness medicine. I've done some global health projects in Africa. My niche within wilderness medicine is a lot of expedition and race medicine, doing a number of number of different travels around. And then that I mentioned I was in Nepal after the 2015 earthquake there to deliver disaster response. But that had been my only really disaster response experience. So does that make me ready to deploy to Ukraine? Definitely debatable. I was definitely nervous. Uh, when I got the call, I had about three days to get to pack my bags and ready to go. And I was like, what do I need to know? How do I prepare myself? And it's not really a whole lot you can do, but they did choose me as the physician lead for wave three. And this was our team that we had on the ground. So we had a TR team lead and an assistant lead. We had two medical teams, two complete medical teams, just like wave two had. Though Each of those teams consisted of a physician, two nurses, and two paramedics. And then we had an interpreter team that worked with us. 
We also had a big support team, which was really handy, that included two retired Green Berets who were there for our safety and were kind of constantly monitoring for safety. You guys will know more about that. A lot of you military folks will know a lot more about that. I had no idea. And I was like, I'm clueless as to what my safety looks like right now. I feel like I feel safe, but I don't know why. Um, there are some logistics folks, mostly one logistics person there the whole time who just handled everything from laundry to food to things like that, which thank you, TR. That was nice. And we had some digital support folks as well. We had a team based in Zhejiang and a retired State Department official who uh, had a lot of resources and made sure that there wasn't any drastic changes to like military movement and things like that. Um, and then some people, one in particular that was dedicated to communications and travel. And that, and that was our team. So a lot of people uh, to deliver medical care. So getting to Ukraine, took a flight to Krakow, Poland, crossed the border at Krakowitz, and we based ourselves in Lviv. We just stayed at a small university dormitory, which most of the students had left. All right. So that clip I just played you is from October of 2022. It is now June of 2023. Since that clip was recorded, about a million more Ukrainians have left Ukraine as refugees. This brings the total number of refugees to 8.3 million as of May, with many more internally displaced. So just to put this number into perspective, Ukraine only has a total population of around 44 million. About 271,000 of those 8.3 million refugees have come to America. So let's talk for a moment about the medical care refugees need when they reach their destination. What is the emergency medicine perspective on providing care for refugees? Yeah, well, that's quite frankly a really challenging question. The emergency department very much serves as a point for acute medical intervention, but it also is the social safety net. And so we do serve the patients that are most vulnerable, and refugees certainly would count. To speak broadly about it, you know, there's always the medical side and then there's like the social side. And so on the medical side of things, there's always just the acute problems. If there's any actual injuries or diseases that need to be addressed right away, there's also a factoring in of country of origin and the, how that changes different disease likelihoods. Um, you just now have to kind of broaden your differential for certain conditions. You know, a patient coming in with a fever who's from the U.S. is different than a patient who's coming in with a fever who's you know, from sub-Saharan Africa and from the tropics and from, you know, uh, Eastern Asia. And so you just have to know the demographics and the geography to kind of provide the best medical care. Um, so those are some of the considerations that are taken into account when just providing medical care. But in my opinion, I haven't taken care of too many refugees. I can think of maybe a handful, but the bulk of of it from my experience and from from just from what i would guess would really be more on the just the social aspect of like how do we help these people get kind of plugged in to the system into receiving just standard medical care like what 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 do they really need do they need do they need more housing security do they need food do they need clean water do they need to get their kids into education and and so we're kind of a a point where that can at least be 
broached. And so that's really where having good resources like social workers, case managers, and interpreters are, are hugely helpful just to really get a good assessment of what do they really need and how do we get them plugged in. There is a role, I think, also for education um, on our end and at least also educating them on, on some of the benefits that they may have as refugees. So some can be eligible for Medicaid. Children can be el- eligible for uh, child's health insurance program, the CHIPS program. And then there also is a refugee medical assistance program, the RMA program. And so uh, at least if providers are aware of those, then they can help communicate that those are available to refugees. And again, just helping streamline that process of getting them plugged into that. But overall, it is nonetheless challenging. Yeah, great to hear you've given this so much thought and Obviously, we still have a lot to do when it comes to providing care for refugees, but I think you know, if this is a big step in the right direction is to just be aware of the resources uh, that are available. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's continue with one more clip from Dr. Young's talk. Our daily workflow, we would pre-plan where we were going to go days in advance and notify people, mostly the shelter managers, where we were seeing patients, that we would be there and to let the inhabitants of these shelters know. We met at the Ukrainian Catholic University, which is where we were staying, at their annex, which is one of their buildings. We basically just eat the meal together. We would plan the day, make sure everyone was on the same page, make sure all of our comms were on. We had radios and cell phones and little tracking devices, making sure that we knew where everyone was at all times and had a good mobilization plan. We would travel to about one to three sites per day, seeing about 20 to 50 patients per day. (laughs) At the end of the day, we would restock and resupply our bags and make plans for the following day. And that included also like contacting people to set up the next day's work. Typical cases, this is not terribly surprising. We saw a lot of primary care and urgent care. We saw very little emergency. We saw a few kind of emergencies, but not very many. There was a lot of management of home medications and chronic conditions. We saw a lot of elderly people who basically didn't have any of their medications, had very little health literacy and didn't know what medical conditions they had. A lot of times people had a little little written out book um, that was their medical chart that was very difficult to decipher. I don't speak Ukrainian. And we had interpreters, but even the interpreters were like, it's it's doctors writing. It's like literally handwritten. And so they couldn't also read it. So it was really just coordinating their care to the best of our knowledge and making sure that we addressed any kind of more life threats like their COPD or their diabetes or things that actually could worsen pretty acutely. A lot of viral illnesses, not surprising. This is also in a time of COVID, as it, I guess it still is. And so there, there's just lots of viral illnesses. No one's wearing masks. There's very little hand washing. So not surprising, one virus would just spread through this communities very quickly. A lot of abdominal pain, headaches, musculoskeletal injuries. People had trouble sleeping. A lot of people just wanted us as American physicians to see their kids and make sure their kids were okay. So we did a lot of well-child visits. And not surprising, there's also a lot of mental health issues that people were having, a lot of anxiety, obviously trouble sleeping. People were just honestly really wanted to tell their story and to someone who just kind of had a different viewpoint or may be able to offer some help. And so a lot of what we did was listen to people's stories of of 
their displacement and what they had to go through. Um, we did have some occasional war-related injuries, and I feel like for like a combat medical center, I feel like I should mention that we saw didn't see any real combat injuries. Right, there was uh, we were in the western part of Ukraine. We were not allowed to go to the eastern part of Ukraine, despite us trying to push into Kiev, where we thought we'd be able to help more people. But our safety, we had again the safety team was monitoring the situation, and um, despite asking and making sure that there was no way we could go to a different part of the country to see if we could help more. It just was never determined to be safe enough for us to go. I saw things like fractured bones that had probably healed over the last three days to frostbite for people who've been held prisoner for some time, a lot of perforated eardrums from explosions and hearing loss and things like that, but, but no real direct combat injuries. One thing that I didn't quite expect was to deliver educational content while I was there, and that ended up being quite a large part of my job. We had a continuous communication with local leaders and politicians, medical directors, people who ran hospitals, as well as the WHO. We kept hearing over and over like that people just wanted more information about how to treat people, especially in certain conditions and about war-related things, and, and to share our knowledge. I made it very explicitly clear that I don't have any military background and didn't feel super comfortable talking about a number of these things, but told them that I'm happy to let them know what I know, and and did a lot of studying while I was there. So Wave 2 ended up creating some presentations and creating kind of some networks with some individuals and some uh, universities. Wave 3, which is mine, we expanded the teachings. I probably gave maybe about 15, 18 lectures while I was there. And then Wave 4, there was a less of a need for clinical care and more of a need for these teachings, as that's what people kept asking for. Our education included sea burn, so chemical, biologic, radiologic, nuclear warfare, blast injury, field hole blood transfusion, just principles of emergency care, and stop the bleed. We taught people from, I, I think there was a, I taught a room of like 100 neurologists um, at one point in time, which I was like, this is wild, um, why I'm talking to you, but, uh, but also happy to let you know about what I know about chemical warfare. And then there was all the way down to, um, we had nurses and paramedics and then a lot of lay people. So universities would host a night and we would talk about how to use a tourniquet, how to do some basic patient assessment. It's a very foundational wilderness medicine knowledge. And so, so gave a number of different talks while we were there. So there were some safety considerations. There were daily air raid sirens, usually about three or four a day, and they always happened at night, so they'd interrupt your sleep. We were mandated to go down into the bunkers or just really into any basement that we were nearby. When we were on kind of the lecture circuit, we would be traveling all around Western Ukraine. When we were delivering medical care, we were mostly in and around Lviv. So when we were traveling around, we just have to find whenever it would even be like driving on a highway and the air raid say to go off. And our rules for Team Rubicon would be we'd have to go find a basement somewhere and go sit in that basement. This is part of our team hanging out in a basement for a number of hours that night. There were multiple days where we had intel the missiles were fired to Lviv while we were there, but they were taken down from ground to air defense system. Three days, I think, before I left, there was four missile strikes that happened in Lviv while we were there. Wave 2 also had a number of explosions pretty close to them. A little interesting, we, as medical providers, had a really hard time not going to the scene. But again, Team Rubicon, with our safety in mind, wouldn't let us go to the scene to uh, to make sure that people were okay. I think that was an interesting kind of caveat to, to being there, is we were there to deliver care in like a humanitarian way, but not necessarily to do, you know, kind of combat or military type of rescuing. So that was that was hard. A lot of our team members really struggled to, to stay in our rooms while that was going on. 
So some final thoughts. We started off with talking about the Ukrainian war and how it's affected the, the population there. 14 million people are displaced. There's at just in July, WHO has only published data until July. Over 10,000 civilians have been injured with almost 5,000 civilians that have been killed. But many, many, many more are suffering because of untreated medical and health, mental health conditions, lack of shelter, food insecurity, loss of income, exploitation, trafficking, and abuse, and of course, crimes of opportunity. Healthcare providers honestly have a really unique opportunity to utilize their skill set to deliver care to people. A lot of times we deliver care, in, at least in the emergency department at University of Colorado, in a very safe, protected way. But I think that skill set that we develop in these safe, protected environments have real, true value outside. And to deliver care in, in this very challenging environment was like an absolute honor. And a lot of people, as you go through medicine, as all of you go through medicine, people have gotten you to where you've gone. And so it's really nice to be able to do something to thank everyone who believed in you to get you to where you're at. Okay, thank you, everyone. Awesome. I'm around. I'll be around for a little while. So if you have more questions. All right. Uh, so, Dr. Barlock, just wanted to get your impressions of Dr. Young's story. What surprised you? What made you think? Yeah, wow. I mean, it was excellent to listen to. I, I guess, you know, I um, had my first guess as to, like, what kind of medical care they were going to be providing. And, you know, I just have this archetype in my mind of someone going into, you know, a war zone and then thinking about just how you know, localize some of the battle might actually be and where the bulk of, you know, many of the Ukrainians are and, you know, how everyone still needs help and how they were providing a lot of, you know, primary care for, for patients. And that was not what I initially had thought, but then it's, it's actually not surprising at all. You know, quite frankly, so much of what I do in the emergency room is exactly that. I see viral illnesses all day, every day. So, it's uh, it's uh, it was surprising, but not surprising, you know, uh, at the yeah. same time. Uh, what actually really actually is a surprise is how necessary and how important the education was. It seems like that was something that I, I probably wouldn't have expected if I was to go and do uh, work abroad that, hey, really what's needed and really desired is lecture series. You know, have, doing 15 to 18 lectures is quite a lot already. I, did not, I didn't expect that. Yeah, so I really did like hearing about Dr. Young's work with education while he was in Ukraine. It seems like through his education, he was able to reach a, a much wider audience, have his effects felt in a much wider way. And also that was sort of how he reached the front lines. I know Team Rubicon did not let him go all the way to the front lines, but if he's giving lectures on chemical burns and other trauma that you might see in, in a more active war zone, then I think, I mean, his, his knowledge is having a really appreciable effect on that country. So to bring us back to another emergency medicine topic, Dr. Young brought up uh, blast injuries was something that he provided education on. While I've got you here, I'd like to get your opinion on how you think through blast injuries, how they're different, kind of what uh, would be going through your head if you had a patient uh, coming in uh, and you knew that they had experienced uh, a blast injury. Sure. You know, fortunately, uh, much more of a rare presentation to, to at least to the ER that I, that I work at. With blast injuries, the the thing that 
is definitely different is the degree to which you need to at least consider that this patient needs to be decontaminated because they could what was the explosion was it was it chemical weapons was it radiation those kinds of things are very different than most types of trauma otherwise you can kind of fall into i think a normal trauma protocol where you are looking for major bleeding you're assessing the airway breathing circulation hypothermia things like that but the decontamination part is something that definitely should not be forgotten. Mm-hmm. After that, just there's a certain set of injuries. There's, there's a certain injury pattern that's associated with blast injuries, depending on what exploded. And having an, an intuition for, for what those could be will help you look for them. So with uh, the primary blast, there's usually disruption at air interfaces. So at the eardrum, at the lung, at the GI tract. So you're looking you know, in the ear, checking the tympanic membranes. You're going to get a chest x-ray for sure. You're going to palpate the abdomen. Those things are going to be very important. Then always the secondary injury is the uh, projectiles that injure the individual themselves. And those are actually the leading cause of morbidity and mortality for blast injured patients are the, is that secondary injury. So that's going to be blunt and penetrating trauma. And so you're going to go through that same kind of protocol as you would for any other trauma, stopping bleeding and providing blood and whatever else is, is needed. For the other things, for the tertiary injuries, you know, that, that's going to be crush injuries. You're going to have to think about whether or not, you know, you could consider hyperkalemia with, with uh, any crush injury. And then with the quaternary injury, that's just environmental stuff. So you have to factor in, you know, is this patient burned? Are they going to be hypothermic from that? Are they going to be hypovolemic? Is there, again, a chemical component, radiation? And hopefully you know, you're thinking about that with relation to just the decontamination initially. But there's just a little bit of a different kind of thought process for it. But for the most part, you know, stick with your ATLS trauma algorithm and and the rest of it fall into place. But otherwise, trauma's trauma. All right, good to hear. Before we wrap this up, I think I'll just provide a bit more information about the organization that Dr. Young worked with. Team Rubicon is a veteran-led humanitarian effort. They are headquartered in Los Angeles and have about 145,000 volunteers. But as we heard from Dr. Young, you do not need to be a veteran to volunteer. If Dr. Young's story interests you or inspired you, you can look them up and see how you can get involved. We will link to their website in the show notes. Well, thank you, Dr. Barlock, for joining me in studio today. I've been Jeffrey Olson, and this has been Emergency Medical Minute. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.